You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So, hey, this morning I want to do kind of more of like along the lines of a Bible study. We're going to, we're in our Lenten season, and this week we're going to talk about repentance, which is everybody's favorite conversation. And next week we're going to talk about release, and the week after we're going to talk about return, because Lent is an, uh, is an invitation to, re- to repent, to release, and to return, and to do so in such a way that doesn't mean we work harder and try harder. Um, and what we're going to do, the last few weeks of Lent, the last three weeks of Lent before Holy Week, so the last two weeks of Lent, we're going to talk about the joy. How is that joyful? How is there joy in this season for us? Because Lent has this kind of somber feel to it. Um, if you were here for Ash Wednesday and it was a beautiful gathering um, and it was, just, it was meaningful, if you were here, it, it has this sobriety to it, this, this somber feel to it because we are mortal, we are human and there are times where we were reminded of that with sickness and sorrow or with, you know, shootings at Kansas City during a, uh, uh, a parade. Like, we, we, we hear these things, and we are reminded of the mortality. And I realize that some of us would rather not think about those things because we feel like we're confronted with those things all the time. And here's my thesis. It's not that we don't think about them. Sometimes we don't think biblically about it. And there's a difference. So for those of us who are like, oh, I think a lot about it, the question is, do we think theologically? Like, do we think in light of our hope? But also in the reality of the crucified Christ, who is also the risen Christ, but in the reality of the crucified Christ and what God did. And so Lent is a season that invites us into that. And in our church, I and many of us talk a lot about our need for liberation had somebody asked me, why do you always like the word liberation? Because liberation is, in the words of a kid in this church who heard it for the first time, a strong word. Because to be free is one thing, but to be liberated has the picture of somebody coming and breaking the chains. And that's actually what Jesus did. He didn't just come and say, you're free. He came and broke the chains with nail-scarred hands and spear-pierced side and a a crown of thorns on his brow, he broke the chains that has held us captive. And so liberator, liberation, and to be quite frank with you, that's actually a better English translation for the Greek word that is translated freedom for second because it's a strong verb, it's a strong word. And we talk about our need for liberation, and here's why. If you have your Bibles, it's on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can go there. Uh, Romans 5, 17, and then verse 20 through 21. And I invite you in your own time to read Romans 5. And if you're going to read Romans 5, you probably need to read Romans 1 through 4. Um, but, but you can probably just get away with just reading Romans 5, starting in verse 12. But it will all make sense if you read the whole thing. So let's, 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 let's bring the book of our faith to the place of our table. Um, and let's, let's talk this through. So Romans 5, or 17. Since by one man's trespass, and that one man is who? Adam. Right? Death what? Reigned. Everybody say reigned. Reigned through that one man. So through Adam, death now reigns in the world. The word reign is a political word. Reign. Like king's reign. It's a government word. Death governs. Governs. 
He says, reign through one man, that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, there's a nuance there. We'll talk about that. But where sin, and so he reads on, he goes on, he talks, he unpacks that a little bit, and he gets to 20, and he says, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as what? Sin reigned through what? In death. So now Paul says sin reigns in death. So death reigns and sin reigns. So what governs the world? Sin and death. Which is why in John, John says, don't you know that the whole world is under the influence of the wicked one? That's what he means. The reign of sin and death is at work in the world. There is a governance at work in the world that is not just individual, it's cosmological. It is a world reality. So also, grace will what? Reign through righteousness. Better word for righteousness, the economist, better word for righteousness, believe it or not, is justice, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we live in the world of two reigns. We live in the midst of two reigns, two governments, two politics. Notice it doesn't say anything about the USA. We live in the midst of two political reigns in the world. One is the reign of sin and death. One is the reign of grace. Paul would call the reign of sin and death the kingdom of darkness in another writing in Colossians. And he would call the reign of grace the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the dear son God loves. Uh, It's another way of talking about the kingdom of God. So when you look at this idea of reigning, what the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans 5 as a reign of sin and death, it is a systemic description of not just the individual human condition, but of our societal condition. And he calls it a reign because it's a governing power. It's a politic. It rules over us. Does that make sense to you and me? Trees die. People die. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we gift of violence. We, we have these internal struggles in our world. The reign of sin and death is the realm of human existence where sin and death governs the affairs of humanity. That's the theological understanding. It's where violence and fear is justified. It's where power is expressed through force. This is what makes justice, injustice, and oppression possible. It's the place where I or a society become, quote, free to determine what is true and good, right and wrong. And that is where the freedom of the reign of sin and death gets us. Every man and woman becomes their own version of a God, free to determine what they believe to be right or wrong. And so all of the things that keep the world running off the rails or seemingly running off the rails is explained in Paul's theology as, look, I'm not surprised. Don't be surprised that the darkness is so dark. This is where reign of sin and death rules, not only in the human condition of humanity individually, but also in a social condition. And so then he says, that is what's happening in the world. But now what else is happening to the world, he says, is another reign. And what Paul is saying in Romans is, you've been made a citizen of that reign. You have been made someone who is a part of that rule in the world. You've been liberated from the bottom of society to the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Top to bottom, right to left, in and out. All of you have been liberated in this. And he points to the reign at work in the world called the reign of grace. And now he's referring to the kingdom of God. And this too is a systemic 
description of both the human and social condition of the world. It's the realm of human existence where violence and fear is placed in submission to reconciliation and shalom. It's where power is not expressed through force, but instead, Paul would say, Philippians chapter 2, he would say it's expressed through self-giving love. That's what he would say. Let this attitude be like in you as it was Christ Jesus, who though he was God, did not consider his equality God as something to be held on to his own advantage, but instead he emptied himself in the form of a slave. It's self-emptying love. The Greek word is kenosis, self-emptying love. It's the idea of giving oneself. And the thing that Paul says, he says, do what Jesus did because the first word of Philippians 2 is, let this attitude be in you that was in Jesus. See? So the reign of grace is this place where power is not expressed through force or coercion, but through humility and self-giving love, which that's what cultivates generosity and hospitality and faith. Faith is the light by which those living in this realm both see the world and walk in it. And it's not a generic faith. It's a kind of faith that rests singularly in a trust, not just a belief, but a trust that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and King and that as Lord and King, He alone determines what is true and good, right and wrong. And we submit to that because we live under that reign. Does that make sense? And those who live under the reign of grace called to grow in humility and trust that there is no need to resort to the old ways of violence and fear reflective of the reign of sin and death which we become all too accustomed and their hope and identity and security those who live in the reign of grace rests in God's kingdom that will never actually be in trouble those living in this reign have nothing to prove and can let go of the self-defensive postures the reign of sin and death encourages. They're aware that they share responsibility in the brokenness of society. They are aware that they share responsibility in the brokenness of society because we have also been formed by the reign of sin and death, which Paul calls in the human condition, in some translations, not what Paul calls it, but it's translated sinful nature or flesh. What Paul calls the reign of sin and death in a cosmological idea is what he says, the principalities and the powers and the rules of this age. Paul says it's both end. And they're aware that they share in the brokenness of society. And they're committed to living in God's presence where their way of being in the world makes Christ's reign of grace tangible in the midst of the reign of sin and death. Because those living under the reign of grace are a reconciled and forgiven community, they are summoned to do whatever it takes to become a reconciling and forgiving community. They become a community that refuses to be schooled in denial and readily admit that the reign of sin and death upholds systems of injustice rooted in violence and fear. That's why it's always puzzled me when Christians don't believe in any forms of systemic injustice. I'm like, then do you not believe in the reign of sin and death in the world? And they do not bury their heads in the sand. They don't separate themselves from the world. They enter into it, just like Christ did, even into the suffering, even into the violence, like Lloyd has done. And because this is what their Lord has done, that is what they do. And this way of being present and active in the world becomes the way of bearing witness to the Lord's reign of grace. And we need to be liberated into this kind of life. It's 
especially if we are to know the joy of our salvation. And only Jesus can take us there. And although we receive this liberation in Jesus' finished work, in other words, it, we, it, we, it is ours. We are in it. We must live it. <laughs> and it seems to me that the scriptures call us to this continual commitment to what the Bible calls repentance because that is how we constantly keep ourselves in our minds and in our eyes focused on the Christ who has liberated us. And that is why Lent is helpful. Lent is a time when followers of Jesus ask about the meaning of repentance and reflect upon what it means to turn away from, everybody say turn away. Turn away from the passions, practices, and pursuits that keep us from an awareness of the nearness of Christ and turn toward. Everybody say turn toward. Repentance is a turning away, but a turn also a turning toward. Turning away from practices, pursuits, and passions that keep us from God and toward the practices, pursuits, and passions that keep us close to God. Because God's nearness hasn't gone anywhere. That's why Jesus would say, um, not a million times because that's overstated. That was a preacher hyperbole. That is why Jesus would say, repent and believe in the gospel. That's why Paul would even use the language of obey the gospel. Did you know that? He said obey the gospel. And what he means by that is like, like you got like turn away from false allegiances and misguided allegiances and misplaced hopes toward your allegiance to Jesus as king and live that way. That's the thing. That is where joy is actually found because that's where we see the miracle. That's where we see the hopeless find hope and that gives us joy. Anyway, I'm skipping around. The reality is the reign of sin and death has inflicted real damage on us, on our family systems, on our social systems. And please hear me. We see that in the garden when after Cain killed Abel and fled east of Eden to found the first city when we are told the pattern of power and violence would establish the foundation of human civilization and every society and empire to follow. And that is why scripture calls all nation states and empires Babylons. Because it's literally what Cain started. And we live in a world violence has created. It's in the, it's in the Bible. And we convince ourselves that this is right. We slay the Abels among us who do not look like us, think like us, or were here even before us. You know, the indigenous Abels. And we hide the bodies and we lie to ourselves and to God about what we have done just like Cain did. And there isn't a place of human existence where the reign of sin and death hasn't touched and made sick. We are sick. That's what Paul was saying to us. To us specifically, he was saying we were sick. And the reign of sin and death is our sickness. Spreading from heart to heart, 
mind to mind, body to body, from family systems to economic systems to political systems. The reign of sin and death pervades every part of human existence and has created a society of ashes. We need healing for our sin-sick souls, minds, hearts, and social systems that work in our society. This is why I think Matthew, in his gospel, squeezes all of the Jesus healing stories in basically two chapters in his gospel, chapters 8 and chapter 9. And you'll notice it in the reading that we're going to have this morning where Matthew packs in one healing story right after the other. These healing stories are given to us not only to show that Christ can heal bodies and does heal bodies, which he does, but to make a larger biblical, a larger gospel, a larger theological point. Matthew is making a larger theological point to these stories, in my opinion, because remember, Matthew is a theological document, and this is the larger point he leads us to when he draws these healing stories to a close with Matthew chapter 9, verse 11 through 13. Real quick, the context is Jesus has called Matthew, a tax collector, into the fold of discipleship and then has a party at Matthew's house with a bunch of people who would have been excluded by the very people that Jesus has tried to reach. Okay, so the context matters. Verse 11, But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, read it with me, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy. Come on now. I want mercy and not sacrifice. Come on. I didn't come to call righteous people. Sinners. Righteous people aren't sick, see? They don't know they're sick, so they can't hear the call. Sinners know they're sick and need a doctor. The sickness that has infected all of us is where our deepest healing needs to come. The reign of sin and death has guaranteed, guaranteed, everybody say guaranteed. It's the word reign. It's guaranteed sin's sickness in this world. Guaranteed it. That's why we're born into it. It's guaranteed it. And the reign of grace in response has guaranteed liberation from it. Come on now. And yet every time we fall out of liberation and back into the reign of sin and death, we make ourselves sick again. Every time we start buying the rules of the reign of sin and death, we fall back into our sickness. It's called sin. And sin makes us sick. We talk a lot of different ways about sin in the Christian tradition. And I want to offer a way that I think, you don't have to agree, is in line with kind of the way the Hebrew tradition would talk about sin. And since our faith comes from a Hebrew faith into the Christian faith, it makes sense to have like this, see where the common threads are. Sin can be understood as a distortion of our whole selves. A distortion of our mind, heart, body, and soul that leads us away from God's truth, goodness, and beauty. Think about God's truth, God's goodness, and God's beauty. Think about that. Paul's word for sin is a Greek word that literally translates to miss the mark. And that is what it means. 
sin, driven by the reign of sin and death at work in us and around us, leads us away from the goal or the mark of God's holy truth, holy goodness, and holy beauty. The mark that is missed is not a standard. It's not a standard. The mark that it misses is God, God's self. Sin, I think then, is better understood as a sickness than a legal problem. Does everybody know what I mean when I say legal problem? See, we need a doctor more than we need a lawyer. No offense, bro. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, I mean, you kind of do, Fred, especially you, buddy. And then you may need a lawyer because you don't get your sickness in check. The scripture shows us that Jesus is our advocate for sure. He is our advocate for sure. And in that sense, he becomes our, our a quote, attorney that handles our guilt before God. And in many churches, this is what is talked about the most. We have a sin problem that leads to a guilt problem before God. So we focus on Jesus' advocate as a divine attorney who stands with us in the courtroom of heaven. And I'm telling you, you probably read it. There are, even, there are even sweet stories written about that. And I'm sure you can find them on social media somewhere where, where Jesus is the, is the advocate, the attorney for the guilty who stands before God, the judge. It's got this whole courtroom scene. And the whole thing is a sin is a guilt problem that has a legal problem that God has to take care of in Jesus. And so God kills his son in order to save us from the guilt problem that God's going to judge us from. That's how we frame it. And we even see it in the Hebrew Scriptures as God forgives and redeems the lives of those who commit atrocities. That God stands with the guilty to save the guilty. We remember God redeemed Abraham for good things after he attempted to trade his wife's sexuality for his safety. Moses was redeemed for good things after he murdered a man. David was redeemed for good things after he acted as a ruthless abuser, murderer, and power-mongering leader. And then we think of the Christian scriptures and look no further than the Apostle Paul who was a zealous terrorist killing Christians because of his own religious political ideology. God stands with and redeems from the guilt of these things. We thank God for redeeming the guilty. So I'm not making light of that at all. But let's not forget that the scripture actually spends more time showing us that Jesus wants to do more than handle our legal status with God. He wants to liberate our lives and offer us wholeness and lead us into the truth, goodness, and beauty of God for our joy. And I think Matthew chapters 8 and 9 is trying to help us see that. I believe what Matthew takes this section and he springs it out. He's trying to make a connection to Isaiah 53. Where in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew says, that evening people brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed. He threw the spirits out with just a word. He healed everyone who was sick. This happened so that what the Isaiah the prophet would said would be fulfilled. He is the one who took our illnesses and carried away our diseases. And that's the reflection on Isaiah 53 where it says, it was certainly our sicknesses that he carried and our sufferings that he bore, but we thought him afflicted, struck down by God and tormented. It's almost like Isaiah knew we would have bad theology down the road with penal substitutionary atonement categories. And he was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He, before, he bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. To assume this text speaks of only physical healing misses the point. To assume that it speaks only to spiritual healing misses the point too, I think. 
Jesus wants to heal us. And more than just any physical manifestation of sickness, even though I think he wants to heal us there, he wants to heal us from sin and liberate us from the reign of sin and death. He wants to lead us toward the truth, goodness, and beauty of God where we're liberated and healed. He wants to become, he wants us to become as God intended. But we have to remember that every time we fall out of liberation and back into our captivity within the reign of sin and death, we make ourselves sick again. So why do we speak to injustices? Why do we speak to the isms and all the things? Because those are reflective of the reign of sin and death. And when we don't keep those in check, we make ourselves sick. And we trade a liberating reign for an oppressive reign. And then in trading a liberating reign for an oppressive reign actually leads to a very physical oppressive reign. In laws and policies and practices and procedures because sin-sick people Make sin sick laws. Why? Like, that's how that works. And then other sin sick people gather around sin sick laws and say, that's a good law. So it's not just that it's just, oh, I've got a lion problem, or I've got a porn problem, or a gossip problem. Or a substance use struggle. That's a disorder in my life that I've got a trauma to heal from. It's, it's, I need to be made well. My soul is sick. And I need to be liberated. Like down in the depths of my soul. I need to see that bodies aren't mine to take or mine to hurt. And so Paul, in writing this entire treatise to Roman, to Roman Christians, and by the way, where do Roman Christians live? Rome. Yeah, that was easy, right? That was an easy one. Some of y'all were like, Rome? Does he not know that? He can't open the virtual for the batteries. He may not know that. Rome is the center of world power. It's the center of world power. So can you imagine? Can you imagine the controversy that Paul is creating? 
writing to the center of world power, Christians living there and saying there are some political, the political rules of the world reflect the reign of sin and death in the world. And you now have been made citizens of a kingdom that is not Rome and your Lord is not Caesar. And the Pax Romana, which was on the shields, which meant the peace of Rome, is not actually peace, is not the Pax Kingdom of God, which, you know, Pax Basilica, like it's not the peace of God. It's not, this, it's all false peace. And it's all reflected of violence and the reign of sin and death. And every time you see a crucifixion of a non-Roman person on the hill of Golgotha, you're reminded you don't mess with Rome. And then Paul says, and oh, by the way, who was crucified on that cross? The king. Because he couldn't stay dead. And so Paul then says, which reign do you want? You want the reign of sin and death or you want the reign of grace? Because you don't get to split allegiances. You don't get to split allegiances. And we too often do. And we think it's innocent and subtle. And that is what the sinful flesh, that is what the reign of sin and death of work in our sick souls tells us. You can cheat that one time. You can lie that one time. You can turn a blind eye to that injustice this one time. And we don't realize that we slowly but surely put our hands together and let the reign of sin and death just chain us all up again. And then we call somebody for help because our life spins off the rails. Sound like a pattern anybody's lived? And Paul is saying, turn away from that. Just turn away from it. Lent is a season that says, repentance isn't a one-time act. Repentance is an ongoing, continuing ethic in the life of a Christ follower. Repentance is living my life with a joyful awareness that there is nothing better than Jesus And there is nothing more liberating than the kingdom of God. And I'm going to forsake all other things in order to be there. Which is why Jesus said, don't think I came to bring peace between households. Y'all remember that very uncomfortable Jesus teaching? I came to bring division. And what I think Jesus means is, you're going to be put in a position to choose. You're going to have to choose sides. And you know why you're going to have to choose sides? Because the reign of sin and death is going to draw the line. And you're going to have to choose where you stand. With the reign of grace or the reign of sin and death. You didn't draw the line. But they made you choose. And you will have to choose. Which one will you choose? And lit is a reminder that we have a choice to make. A choice in our own souls. And a choice in our society. And we have to reckon with the fact that there's still some sickness in my soul. That God is still healing me from. From childhood traumas. From Formation in the reign of sin and death from living in certain ways and living in certain behaviors and living in certain 
understanding just of how the world works. And somewhere, somehow, I find out every now and then that that sin is still within me. Raise your hand if you can identify with that. The rest of you are lying. That's good. No, I'm just kidding. And that's the reflection. And so Lent is a reminder that says, hey, that is still in you and you've been liberated. So go ahead and keep walking in the kingdom of God and let God liberate you from that. But don't forget it. Don't forget that the sin sick soul that has been healed in you is in the process of being healed and you can slide right back in. You don't have to. The world's going to invite you in. The world's not your enemy. The devil's the enemy. The enemy's the enemy. There's no culture to fight a war with. There's only a culture to witness to. My God, with the enemy-making machine of everybody's the enemy. And they may be your enemy. That's why Jesus said what? Love them. <laughs> Dog it, Jesus. And we're called into that. And Lent is a reminder of our need to embrace repentance as an ongoing ethic in our life. And that it is bigger than just behavioral modification and behavioral change. That this is both a sin sickness and a cosmic sickness at work in the world. But both your soul and the cosmos is being made new. You are being made new. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.